Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I am Robert Winfrey. Fair warning, I am flying solo this particular episode. Jeff Harris, unable to be with us. Just prior commitments. Uh, Jeff should be back in a couple of weeks for when the show returns. All right, uh, on the docket this evening, let's, well, whenever you happen to be listening to this, we're recording this on January 26th, the Sunday. Uh, sad news came out earlier today about the uh, helicopter crash that, unfortunately, you know, all, all people on board died, including uh, NBA legend Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter. Just a terrible thing. Uh, for whatever my condolences happen to be worth, uh, and I mean, you can feel whatever you want to about people in my position expressing them, but for what again, for whatever they're worth, uh, you know, that that's a terrible thing. I mean, the man was only 41 years old and had a family. That's just terrible to deal with. Uh, anyway, on the docket this evening, a review of last night, UFC on ESPN plus 24. Uh, it was an event. We'll go over it. Uh, because there's a minor scheduling note here, for those of you who may have missed it last week, there will not be an episode next Sunday. That is the, sec- uh, the fe- 2nd of February. Uh, the Super Bowl is that day, and I have a long-standing family tradition around that particular event. Uh, if there is a, I, I will say this, if there is a major change to UFC 247, I will, I will record something to potentially address it. If, if it doesn't change, there is going to be a preview of UFC 247 on this event that should just service as the preview for that show, even though it's a couple of weeks away. And then news such as it is, uh, there's some news, there is some news to go over, so... That's kind of what we have going on. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and jump into the first part of this. Last night, UFC on ESPN Plus 24. The UFC was back in the great state of North Carolina, their first time to the city of Raleigh. And uh, the main event, Curtis Blades defeats former heavyweight champion Junior Dos Santos via TKO, punches, few knees thrown in there for good measure, 106 of the second round. Um, it, something of an interesting statistic, actually, that I saw come out of this fight. Um, and the stoppage comes in the second round. Curtis Blades, unable to take Junior Dos Santos down. I think he was officially credited with, I think, four or five attempts. And Junior stopped all of them. Uh, the man's takedown defense is still really good. But the interesting thing that came out of this was... Like, Junior hasn't been taken down since his first fight with Stipe Miocic. Which is an absolutely crazy thing, because that first fight with uh, Miocic occurred in December of 2014. And the man hasn't been taken down since. Now, this is somewhat mitigated by the fact that every... Uh, everyone since then, so this would be Alistair Overeem, Ben Rothwell, the rematch with Miocic, Blagoj Ivanov, Taito Ivasa, Derek Lewis, and Francis Ngannou, all of them had combined for a grand total of one takedown attempt. And didn't get it, but, you know, Blades, unable to get the takedown, but part of the purpose in 
MMA of showing takedowns and attempting them is to open up other opportunities. Also to just get your opponent to react to them. Junior was showing... uh, His reaction to being taken down, in addition to, you know, some of the good defensive things he was showing, but he also wanted to throw the rear hand uppercut as a lead blow. And this is a dangerous idea at the best of times because if you're not getting a good read on it you're going to get countered you're going to get smashed commentary was even saying it in the second round blade shows a double leg junior reacts by dipping to kind of throw the uppercut blades throws an overhand right uh hits him hurts him badly junior backs into the fence and just kind of Blades flurries until the ref stops it. Uh, you know, solid win for Curtis Blades. Uh, one of the larger, one of the bigger ones of his career. He said he wants the next title shot, which is kind of awkward considering he was being interviewed by Daniel Cormier, who is the presumptive number one contender. Uh, Blades is just heavyweight's in such a weird spot right now with Stipe. Some of which is not his fault. Uh, some of which is. We'll get to Stipe a little bit later in the program. Blades, you know, probably would have normally gotten a shot at the title by now if it were conducted normally, but there's a few things stopping him from getting that. One of them being Francis Ngannou, who has stopped Curtis Blades twice. Uh, you have So you have Cormier looking for a trilogy fight with Stipe. You have Ngannou versus Rosenstreich coming up in the near future. That could potentially crown a, you know, the winner of that could get a title shot. Even if it's Ngannou, and we've already seen Ngannou and Stipe, if he if he wins that fight, like, that... If he wins that fight, he'll be, what, because uh, he, he had the weird, weird uh, fight with Derek Lewis. But, yeah, he's been 3-0 since then with TKO wins over Curtis Blades, Cain Velasquez, and Junior Dos Santos. If he follows that up by beating Rosenstreich, I think that four-fight winning streak, yeah, you probably got to give it to him. Uh, so, there's a lot of guys, and I mean, if Rosenstreich does that, jeez. If Rosenstreich beats Ngannou, if he, especially if he, like, finishes him, I think you'd have a hard time arguing against that guy. So, point being, heavyweight's in a weird spot, and there's not really a great timetable for Stipe's return. Which is also kind of throwing things off, because he's the champion. And logjams like this can happen when you don't have the champion actively working within the division. So, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, For Junior, this is his first losing streak ever. Because uh, he lost to Ngannou before this, and now Blades... Uh, you know, Junior debuted in the UFC in October of 2008. He's probably going to make it to the full 12-year mark in the UFC. That's remarkable. Especially to consider he, you know, went on this giant winning streak, became champion, defended the championship... I mean, the man is one of the premier heavyweights of that generation. You know, given his ability to remain active and relevant, 
I know Kane's the better. You know, Kane beat him two of the three times they met. But you know, Junior might have. Well, when it's all said and done, Junior might have made the more lasting impression on the division. Uh, which is certainly something borderline remarkable. Uh, we're really close to the end of him in the UFC at this point, though. It's it's just years and miles. I mean. Again, 12 years in the UFC, fighting... I mean, listen to the guys, listen to the names of these guys fighting. He debuts against Fabricio Verdum, scores a upset knockout win. Then fights Stefan Struve, finishes him. Mirko Krokop finishes him. Gilbert Ivel, a lot of people remember Gilbert Ivel, sometimes for good reason, finishes him. Gabriel Gonzaga finishes him. Roy Nelson gives him one of the worst beatings Roy Nelson's ever taken. Shane Carwin... Gives him a beating. Finishes Kane Velasquez. Finishes Frank Mir. Rematches with Kane. Loses. Fin- knocks out Mark Hunt. Rematches with Kane. Loses. Beats Stipe Miocic. Fights Alistair Overeem. Loses. Fights Ben Rothwell. Wins. Loses a title fight with Miocic. Then goes on a three-fight winning streak. Even off Tuivasa. Derek Lewis. Now, just to round out who he's fought. Francis Ngannou and Curtis Blades. You know, the closest thing you get, you know, Ivanov might be a little bit of a dud as a fighter in terms of excitement, but he's not an easy guy to beat. I mean, the, again, the, I think the closest thing you get to, you know, easier fights would arguably be Ivanov, and then probably, like, Ival. I mean, even Ival at the time uh, was... That was his re-debut in the UFC, and going into that fight with Junior, he'd only lost once, and that was to Josh Barnett in his last... Two, three, four, five... Like, seven or eight fights. The man was on a legitimate run. And, yeah, I mean, Roy Nelson might be kind of a, a joke at this point. He shouldn't be, but... Roy Nelson going into that fight with Junior... Had just debuted in the... Had... Uh, two fights in the UFC, knocked out Brendan Schaub and then knocked out Stefan Struve. And I mean, even, you know, kind of setting that aside, he had a good record kind of coming into that fight. He was 15-4 and four going into the JDS fight. That's a very respectable record. Uh, the man's fought, he's not really had any soft touches for 12 years. Uh, the fact that he's about you know, we're coming up on him riding off into the sunset. Is well deserved, and it's gonna suck because I like Junior as kind of a personality, and I tend to enjoy his fights. But you know, nobody does this forever. Nobody remains at the top of the mountain forever. Uh, you know, I. I might share that later. It it just happens to you know even the people we think are the most invincible. You know sometimes it's just like fatal flaws in their skill set. Sometimes it's just time. It's just hey I've you know been a wrecking machine for five or six years in the in MMA, a sport that rapidly invo- evolves. And you know hey I started slowing down. I've been training. You know, two or three times a day, five to six days a week for however many years I've been doing this, it wears you down. 
It just does. And I think we're just kind of getting to that point with Junior. And it sucks to see, cause it ha- but it does happen to everybody. Um, yeah, again, as for Blades, he's in a rough spot just because you've got a few different people who are making cases for themselves as contenders. Most of them have higher profiles than Blades. And you've got a champion who we don't know exactly when is coming back, so it's a rough spot. All right, co-main event. Michael Chiesa defeats Rafael Dos Anjos for unanimous decision. 130-27, which is a little bit iffy. 229-28, which is... That's what I had it. Um, Rafael Dos Anjos is another guy, I think, that we're just de- seeing the years and the miles start to catch up. He doesn't look... He doesn't look shot. You know, he doesn't look broken down. He doesn't look like a shell of himself. But Dos Anjos has always had a couple of weaknesses. One of them is physically aggressive and physically based wrestlers. And some of his... Just some of his choices. You know, Dos Anjos is a very, very good grappler. But if he's on bottom, he doesn't really look to scramble. He's not that great about risking giving some giving up a position to generate motion that could lead to his escape. This, that's a very big thing right now in MMA. A lot of guys on bottom will just, you know, th- they'll throw up a submission attempt or they'll start some kind of motion. They'll wind up on their knees in like turtle guard, potentially giving up their back, trusting that they're going to either hustle to get up or being able to use the fence or is, and sometimes it backfires, but how is how MMA is conducted right now as a general rule, if you're in a disadvantageous position grappling, you do not try to minimize damage the way that a lot of people used to do, and RDA in some respects still does. You open yourself up to the possibility of worse things happening in order to try to generate an opportunity to better your position. There's just not a lot of that right now from Dos Anjos. And it's eh, it's a limitation. Uh, he had a good second round. Uh, I mean, it's not like he had a bad first or third. He just lost them. He got taken down. He you know first round he gave up his back. And Michael Kies is an exceptional back taker. Uh, third round he got taken down again. Spent most of it just on bottom side and half guard. Getting you know, just kind of controlled, loosely threatened. I mean, I, I appreciate Kiesa going for the submission, and if he'd been able to get it, that would have been fairly large just because Dos Anjos has not been submitted since he had the jaw injury issue against Clay Guida. And for context, that happened way back in 2010. And... <laughs> That's his only submission loss, I think. Yeah. His first two losses are split decisions outside the UFC. Gets knocked out by Jeremy Stevens. Loses to Tyson Griffin. Wins three in a row. Has the jaw injury against Guida. Knocks out Sadaropoulos. Split decision with Tebow. Uh, Five-fight winning streak. Loses to Khabib. Another winning streak, including his title win and title defense. But yeah, the man has only been submitted once, and that was due to injury. To be the first guy to actually tap him, that's going to be a big deal. If somebody's able to pull it off. 
unfortunately, Dos Anjos is just one in four in his last five now. And there was a, another stat that kind of got brought up. Over his last five fights, Rafael Dos Anjos has been taken down like 34 or 35 times. Now, for context, his last five opponents are going in order from latest to most recent. Colby Covington, Kamaru Usman, Kevin Lee, Leon Edwards, and Michael Chiesa. Okay, two... Okay, one of those guys is the champion. One of those guys just fought for the title. And one of those guys, Leon Edwards, is a profoundly underappreciated fighter who might be fighting for the title in the near future. Then you also have Kevin Lee, who's a great takedown artist. Michael Chiesa, great take... Like, all of those guys know how to get takedowns. There is a level of opposition that has to be considered when discussing this fact. He still has given up 30-some-odd takedowns over five fights. That is not a sustainable recipe for success. It, it just isn't. And he's... I think if you're going to make an argument that Dos Anjos kind of isn't who he used to be, he's not as consistently aggressive as he used to be. Part of that, I think, is the reality of fighting at 170. He's the smaller man. And he is aware of that fact, and he's not going to be as just kind of in-your-face pressure-oriented the way he was at lightweight, because the consequences are different and potentially more dire at welterweight. And, I mean, it's not to say that he's never been able to do that at welterweight. I mean, look at his fight with Robbie Lawler. A lot of pressure in that. A lot of clinch fighting, too. But it's just a reality of his time at welterweight that he's the smaller man. He's never been really good at dealing with very physically demanding, physically aggressive wrestlers. And that division is full of them. Uh, Chiesa called out... Colby Covington after the fight. Uh, okay. You know, I don't know what we don't we'll have a we don't have a timetable for Colby's return at the moment, but you know, you could do worse. Uh, I mean, Kiesa after the fact, you know, when he was asked about it, said it's not personal. He doesn't have anything against Covington. He just wants to get to the title, and Covington is a fairly high-profile opponent, who with a win over would definitely put him into that discussion. So. I mean, fair enough. Reasonable call-out. For Dos Anjos, he was ranked, I think, 5 coming into this fight. He should, First of all, should not have been ranked 5. Was way overranked. Uh, he should probably be fighting guys, you know, if they're still ranked. We're talking, you know, 11 to 15. Like, he should not be fighting the very best at the moment. He's That's just not where he is right now. And it sucks that Dos Anjos is kind of... It seems like he's destined to become just a forgotten great. The man's technically very, very good. Uh, former champion. Genuinely great fighter. In fact, if we're talking just about, like, technicians. He's an all-time technician in the sport. He's going to be forgotten about and talked about only by, you know, pundits who really get deep into this stuff. That seems to be what his fate is. And it sucks, but that happens in every combat sport. You know, there's not a lot of people, if you talk about, say, boxing heavyweights, that devote a lot of time to talking about Ezra Charles or Jersey Joe Walcott or Gene Tunney. And just the genuinely... I mean, Gene Tunney only lost one fight his entire career, retired with the title after beating Jack Dempsey twice. 
Might have had one more title defense in there. I can't remember off the top of my head. You know, Ezra Charles, like the best light heavyweight fighter ever, never won a title because he, <laughs> I don't think he ever really fought for one, he became heavyweight champion, had defenses, Jersey Joe Walcott, you know, these are great technicians. Uh, I'm, you know, when Mike Tyson was coming up, one of his, one of the people he studied tape on was Charles. You get deep into this stuff and people know who they are. That's, and it seems like that's what's going to happen to Dos Anjos. And again, it sucks, but it is a reality of the sport. All right, we had a flyweight fight between Alex Perez and Jordan Espinosa. Alex Perez wins via technical submission, arm triangle choke, 233 of the first round. Uh, this was an odd fight in a couple of ways. Um, the finish itself, we've seen this finish becoming a thing more and more recently. Uh, you still see it rarely, but it does happen. You get someone with the arm triangle position. So say, say you're on top. Uh, I'll use this as an example. Uh, Perez is on top in half guard. Uh, he is on. He's on Espinosa's left hip. So. So the arm triangle threat is actually on Espin is on the opposite side. So this would be to Perez's own left. Now this is traditional wisdom holds that you are more safe if you are on in half guard on the other side. Now this is true depending on a few other, but it is contingent on a few other things. In the case of Perez, one some of this has to do with how you grip and how your arm and shoulder and everything is kind of framed relative to your opponent. But if you look at how he does it, he gets his arm flat all the way around the back of the neck. His shoulder is there. And it, it means he is in, you know, kind of a position where he can do it. He's got a wicked squeeze. And more importantly, he's able to base up onto his toes to leverage his weight down into the choke. And... Some guys just do it pure with, like, gorilla strength. Uh, like, Rick Story, I think, got one that was just a squeeze with a little bit of him basing up. Here, uh, the other one that comes to mind that is similar to this is uh, Ketlin Vieja and Sarah McMahon, I think it was. Where you've got the arm triangle, you're in half guard, but on the wrong side, traditionally. But because of how you have your arm positioned and your opponent not controlling your hips and your, what you're doing with your body, you're able to, again, get up on your toes, kind of, and leverage your body weight into the choke down. It's... You don't, you don't see it very often because there's things you can do to counteract it, but it can be effective from that position if you know what you're doing and if you get the right kind of set of circumstances. And that's what we got here. Uh, good win for Perez. I mean, Perez has only lost in the UFC to Joseph Benavidez. That's it. Uh, he's a really good fighter. I hope he sticks around flyweight. I hope flyweight sticks around in general. Uh, yeah, this was a good little fight and a good finish. Uh, we had a women's strawweight fight. Angela Hill defeated Hannah Cyphers via TKO. Elbows and punches from full mount. 426 of the second round. 
Uh, good win for Hill. She kind of took this on short notice. And Angel Hill finally seems to be kind of getting some of her, uh, all of her tools together. Uh, and, you know, Strawweight, Strawweight has good depth, but it's never going to hurt to see somebody actually, you know, make a run. Uh, kicking off the main card, we had a light heavyweight fight between Jamal Hill and Darko Stasic. Jamal Hill wins via unanimous decision. 29-27 across the board. I think I was 30-26, but Stasic could have taken the third round. Um, Hill looks like a guy who's 6-0. and 7-0 and now. He's got some promise. Got good hand speed, good power. Has some bad habits. Uh, he leaves his chin very high up in the air. And a lot of his first defense is to lean. Which if you can be okay... Uh, but you really want your feet moving as well. So, a good debut, kind of a good showing, but also, you know, there's, for a guy as green as he is, you know, things you gotta work on still, which is not surprising. Dude's only 7-0 and now. Like, nobody's perfect at that point in their career. Nobody. Alright, uh, that was the main card. So, let's take a look at the prelims here. Uh, Bevon Lewis defeated Dequan Townsend via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. Kind of thought Townsend might have had the last round, but eh. Um, not a bad fight, not a great fight, it kind of existed. Arnold Allen defeated Nick Lentz via unanimous decision, 229-28, 27 Good fight. Arnold Allen seems to be the real deal. Uh, his jab was on point, he's a very well-schooled, very technically sound fighter. I think it's time we get that man to step up in competition. I mean, Lentz, you know, not a pushover. But Arnold Allen has gone, what, 7-0 and in the UFC? Yeah, this was his seventh win in a row inside the UFC. His win streak is a couple of fights longer than that overall. He, it's, I think it's just time we give that guy, you know, get him a ranked opponent. Uh, Lentz is a respectable name, to be sure, especially to just kind of, you know, beat the way he did, because he kind of gave away the last round a little bit, but I can understand sitting on a lead. But let's get that guy somebody in the top 15, yeah? I, I think it's probably time for that. Let's at least see how he does against that level of opposition. Uh, Justine Kish defeated Lucia Pudilova via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. This fight was terrible. Montel Jackson defeated Felipe Colares via unanimous decision, 230-26 and 130-25. Um, Colares has a heck of a chin, and he was game, but, yeah, this was mostly Jackson, just start to finish. <laughs> Sarah McMahon defeated Lena Landsberg via unanimous decision, 3027, 3026, and 3025. I believe I was 3025. Look, we were under the new score, the new rules last night, which include the new scoring criteria. Whichever judge did not give Sarah McMahon a single 10-8 round in this fight should be fired. Like, there's no justification for that under the new criteria. None. Uh, Brett Johns defeated Tony Gravely via rear naked choke, 253 of the third round. This was officially your fight of the night, and it was a really good fight. A lot of scrambles, a lot of back and forth, a really, really good bantamweight fight. And kicking everything off, Herbert Burns defeated Nate Landwer via knockout with a knee, 243 of the first round. 
a really nice knee strike. Herbert Burns is the, I think they said younger brother of Gilbert Burns, who's been in the UFC for a while now. Uh, you know, good uh, fight, you know, good finish, uh, good knockout. Not a whole lot more to say than that. Uh, Burns' jiu-jitsu credentials are fairly legit. He locked up a Darce very quickly in this fight, and you know, Landwehr gets a lot of credit for fighting through it and out of it, but... Uh, Burns just found a good spot when they were exiting a clinch, threw a knee strike as uh, Landwehr was ducking. Knee to the chin, and down goes Landwehr. Uh, all in all, the fights were about kind of what you expected, I think. There were some good, there were some bad, there were some real slogs. Uh, it just kind of existed, you know, there wasn't anything... anything too great to come out of it, but... not a not the worst night of fights I've had to sit through, so I'll, I'll take that on any given Saturday. Uh, thank you to everyone who read Be That Live or After The Fact. I always appreciate you guys. It's it's always humbling that you choose to support what I choose to do here, so thank you very much. Alright, coming up next in a couple of weeks on the 2nd of February... Not the 2nd. Uh, do, do, do. <laughs> Click over. On February 8th, we will have UFC 247... And this is a fairly big pay-per-view. Main event, John Jones and Dominic Reyes. That's, uh... Look, I'm gonna... Again, this is gonna be in... This is gonna be uh, you know, a bit of an early preview, so there's some tape study and whatnot that I'm gonna do ahead of the fight itself that I haven't had a chance to do here, so I apologize for that, but I don't think it's gonna change a lot of what I'm gonna say here. Um, it's, it's odd, because on the one hand, it's almost hard to get really excited for a John Jones fight lately, because he's just such a known commodity. You know, John is just, he's arguably the best fighter the UFC has ever had. That is an argument you can make, it's an argument I might make. It's, I mean, the man is functionally undefeated. His only loss was a DQ, that, fair. I mean... The DQ was fairly... I can understand the call for that to be a disqualification. But he didn't lose that fight In if we're talking about who lost the fight. So, functionally undefeated. Has, you know, fought the best names that he could possibly fight. And <laughs> has beaten all of them. I mean, I could read you the man's U the man's, uh, UFC. He did not... John Jones has not had a single easy fight. Not a lot of people might remember who Andre Guzmao is. I do. He was a bit... He was the hyped prospect coming into UFC 87. He was coming off of a good run in a defunct promotion now, the IFL. And John pulled that off. Then his second fight in the UFC, he fights veteran Stefan Bonner and puts on a great performance. Fights Jake O'Brien. Not an easy fight. Uh, O'Brien, former heavyweight. Uh, just Not an easy fight. He made it look easy because he's John Jones. <laughs> Matt Hamill. Matt Hamill's probably the softest touch he got, in all honesty. Finishes Brandon Vera. Finishes Vladimir Matyushenko. Both tough veterans. Uh, makes Ryan Bader. <laughs> that fight is still one of my favorites. Like, it's hilarious. Smashes Ryan Bader, uh, 
put give Shogun the beating of his life. I mean, I know Shogun's been finished since this fight. This was the worst beating that man has ever taken. Uh, becomes only the second guy to submit Quentin Jackson. Dominates that fight. Submits Lyoto Machida with a standing guillotine. Beats Rashad Evans. Beats Vitor Belfort. Beats, okay, maybe Chael Sonnen's the in-practice softest touch he got, but he smashes him in the first round. Beats Gustafsson, Teixeira, Cormier, Ovin St. Preux. Cormier again knocks him out the second time. Stops Gustafsson the second time. I mean, the man is an absolute legend. He is... And it's just, when you're this good, especially in a division that's lacking contenders with a lot of kind of hype and interest behind them, it can be a really hard thing to generate interest. Now, I'm picking John here because, look, I don't know what it would take for me to pick against John Jones at this point. I will say this. Don't sleep on Dominic Reyes. Dominic Reyes is a, he's a tough opponent. He's undefeated. Uh, he's tall. He's got powerful kicks. And that's something that John has struggled a little bit with. Guys who can kind of match his height and range and powerful kickers. I mean, the Gustafson stuff was less, the first fight, was a little bit less about Gustafson being his same height and some of Gustafson's tactical adaptations to what Jones does. Uh, Jones, you know, made the right reads and in the rematch, uh, the rematch was not close. So uh, picking John here, but don't sleep on Reyes. Look, John's going to lose one of these days. It happens to everybody. It's going to happen to him eventually. And one of the again, one of these times that's it's going to be correct unless he just leaves the sport. Um so don't sleep on Reyes. Reyes is Reyes is legitimate. Uh your co-main event, women's flyweight champion Valentina Shevchenko will defend the title against Caitlin Chukagian. I have no reason to pick against Shevchenko here. I have... I know that, like, the video packages and whatnot for this of, you know, Caitlyn's, I'm nothing like anyone she's fought before. Bull. Uh, all of her counter-striking style isn't going to work on someone who moves as much as I do. Bull. Um, <laughs> I get that they're trying to sell the fight. I really do, but... I'll say this again. If you've watched... Shevchenko versus Karmouche, you're going to have a decent idea of how this fight is going to go. Chukagian moves a lot, to her credit. She does a lot of shadow boxing and key eyeing. I mean, if, you know, if Liz Karmouche did a number on the invisible woman standing about four inches in front of Shevchenko, uh, Chukagian's been doing that to that same invisible woman in front of her opponent for years this is probably going to look like that. I have a really... I mean, the notion that Chukagian is going to fluster Shevchenko... I mean, Amanda Nunes and Joanna Janjacek did not fluster Valentina Shevchenko. I have a really hard time imagining Caitlin Chukagian being the one to do so. So I'm, I'm picking Shevchenko here. Um... Uh, <sighs> I'm just hoping it's not as bad as Shevchenko versus Karmouche, which, look, I I don't blame only Karmouche for how bad that fight was, because there's two people in there. There's 
the reality is some of that is going to fall on both parties. But the reason I give maybe Shevchenko more grief about that than uh, excuse me, I give Carmouche more grief about that is in no small part because of like what she said coming out of that fight. <laughs> she expe- they, they, they expected her to be aggressive. This is either a bald-faced lie or proof that neither Carmouche nor her coaches actually watch tape. Valentina Shevchenko is not an aggressive fighter. She will get aggressive on occasion, but when I dis- but no one who knows what they're looking at would say she's an aggressive fighter. Um, the rest of this card is iffy. We have two heavyweight fights. Never a good sign. Uh, our next fight is Juan Adams. Uh, he of UFC record one and two, with losses to Arjun Buller and Greg Hardy. Will fight Justin Taffa, who oh he knocked out that uh. I want to make sure I'm not confusing them because I might be. I'm pretty sure he's the guy. Was that Jorgen De Castro? And he Jorgen De Castro knocked out Justin Taffa. I'm pretty sure that's it. Now that I think about it, yeah, 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 yeah. Taffa got knocked out by Jorgen De Castro. Okay. Um, they're kind of trying to give. <laughs> Juan Adams, because they like Juan Adams, a winnable fight. Um, I don't know. It's it's low-level heavyweights, man. Either guy could win. Uh, I'll pick Adams. There's a featherweight fight between Mursad Bektic and Dan Ige. It's a good fight. You know, it's a shame that Bektic never kind of panned out the way a lot of people, myself included, thought he would, but he had some injuries and some layoffs, and it just it took all the wind out of his sails. Plus, the loss to Darren Elkins. Uh, he's coming off of a loss to Josh Emmett, whereas Dan Ige has only lost once in the UFC uh, on a four-fight winning streak. I'm still going to lean towards Bektich, but this is a good fight. And then kicking off the main card, we have more heavyweights, as Derek Lewis, he of the My Balls is Hot, uh, who just got a split decision win over Bulgoy Ivanov to break a two-fight losing streak. Uh, he will fight Ilir Latifi, the five foot ten Swedish sledgehammer who's making his heavyweight debut. Well, he's returning to heavyweight for the first time since 2009. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, I'll pick Lewis, but who knows? Um, this card has very recently been gutted by injury. Um, the main event for the prelims was supposed to be Marlon Vera. Anyway, that's your that's your main card. Marlon Vera was supposed to fight Jimmy Rivera. Great fight. Unfortunately, Jimmy Rivera's got has been injured. He pulled out a couple of days ago. Um, we're not sure if he has a replacement yet, or if Rivera and and Vera are just going to be moved to another event. So that's up in the air. A middleweight Trevin Giles and Antonio Arroyo. Is Arroyo fought in the UFC, or am I thinking of someone else with the last name Arroyo? Um, this Arroyo is 9-3. and three. Lost to Andre Muniz. He's not the guy I was thinking of, but... Uh, we're at Giles, since we're thinking about it. 2-2 um, two and two in the UFC on a two-fight losing streak. Probably, probably actually Giles here. This is a bit of a softer touch. 
uh, one that he might be able to kind of rebound with. Uh, we were supposed to have a fight between Alex Morono and Diego Lima. Solid enough fight, actually. Uh, fortunately, Lima pulled out. <laughs> uh, January 22nd, so again, just four days ago. Uh, no word yet on if Morono will get a replacement or if they'll just move that around, but half of our prelims on ESPN are currently not actually fights. And kicking off the ESPN prelims, Lauren Murphy will fight Andrea Lee. Women's flyweight action. Not a bad... I shouldn't say not a bad fight. It's a relevant fight. Uh, Lee coming off of that split decision loss to Joanne Calderwood. I seem to recall thinking she won that fight. Um, as Lauren Murphy... Uh, kind of been trading wins and losses for a while. She beat Mara Romero Barella in her last fight. Uh, probably, probably Andrea Lee there. And then on Fight Pass, Miles Johns will fight Mario Bautista. Uh, Johns ten and zero. I believe this is yeah, not quite his UFC debut. He won his debut against Cole Smith. Uh, Bautista has fought in the UFC a couple of times. Gone one and one. Yeah, he lost to Corey Sandhagen and then bounced back with a win over Jin Su Sun. Uh, see next, probably go with Bautista there. Actually, I don't know that. That's a tough one. They they're both young in their careers. One's ten and zero. One's seven and one. There's a lot of progress that both men can make rapidly. Uh, Domingo Pilarte will fight Journey Newson. Pilarte's fought in the UFC. Lost to Felipe Colares. And Newson also fought in the UFC. Uh, lost his debut to Ricardo to Ricardo Hamos. Probably go with Newson there. Uh, and then kicking everything off, Andre Ewell will fight Jonathan Martinez. You know, that's not a terrible fight. Uh, Ewell coming off of a loss to Marlon Vera. And Martinez... 2-1 in the UFC. Oh, yeah, he knocked out Ling, uh, Liu Pingyuan. Remember that. That was a brutal knockout, actually. Um, probably go with Martinez. But again, two young, still guys, uh, I don't know, Yule's, Yule's been around a bit more. They're, these guys are both a bit more developed, but both guys also have, are still in a phase where they, they can make significant gains in their skill set. So, anyway, that's UFC 247 as it currently stands. Um, you know, not the strongest card top to bottom, but not bad. Again, Jones and Reyes, legitimately good fight on paper. Shevchenko and Chukagian, the champion and the number one contender. Sometimes it produces greatness, sometimes it produces meh. We'll know when it fights. It, it, it's not a great matchup on paper. But, hey, could be great in practice. Uh, Juan Adams and Justin Toff is kind of a non-starter. Bektich and Ige is good. Lewis and Latifi, eh. Um, so, what happens with the, those two fights that might be falling out is going to be... You know, if they just cut those, uh, bumped all three fights from Fight Pass onto ESPN, you know, you'd be down two fights for the totality of the card, but... You'd probably, in all honesty, have a slightly more solid card top to bottom. So anyway, that will take place February 8th. And again, if there's some major changes to this card, if 
if anything happens to either of the top two fights, I'll do another thing next week. I'll just make some time to do a quick one and talk about it. But other than that, um, yeah, this is this is probably going to stand as the preview for that. So we'll see what happens. Uh, join me in a couple of weeks for that one. Should be a pretty decent card, I'll think. Again, hopefully it's really good in practice. Let's all just really hope for that. I don't like watching bad events. I want them to be good. Okay, so that's it for previews. Let's have a look at the... Oh, God. Okay. I wasn't going to talk about this. This kind of got brought up loosely last week by Jeff um, in the wake of UFC 246, and I didn't really want to go into it. My supreme hope was that it would just go away. It would be a blip on the radar, but it's not. It's gonna. It's continued to grow and morph, so I think I'm going to have to address it a little bit here. Um... Okay, so flashback a couple of weeks ago. The post-fight show on ESPN for UFC 246. Stephen A. Smith said some inflammatory things. He said we didn't see enough about Conor McGregor coming out of that fight. He said Donald Cerrone folded like a tent. I believe was something of the verbiage he used. Uh, And this generated a fair bit of backlash, as one might expect including an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, his uh, interview with Josh Thompson, who does some commentary for Bellator, used to fight in the UFC, former Strikeforce champion. And naturally, Stephen A. Smith decides to respond to this. He has a short video out. You can find all this stuff online if you're so inclined. The fact that this is not going, this is not going to go away. It's it's just apparently not. It's going to at least continue to be a thing. So, given that it's going to continue to be a thing, I suppose I should kind of throw in my two cents here. All right. First of all, let's consider a few of the things that Joe Rogan said about what happened. He said it was bad for the sport, that Stephen A. Smith doesn't know what he's talking about, that it's things along those lines. Stephen A. Smith can kind of refutes this, but I think before we really get going on this, you have to understand what Stephen A. Smith is. Stephen A. Smith is a professional blowhard. Now, this doesn't mean he's an idiot. This doesn't mean he's a bad person. This doesn't mean he does not have salient points. It means that when you put that man on camera, he is there to do a couple of things. One, take his personality, which, however, whatever you feel about the man, I can't stop you, his personality is engaging. That's why he's in the position he's in. So he's there to take his personality, turn up the dial, and say inflammatory things. He is something of a provocateur. He is designed to get people talking. Now, he is not the, for the he is also not the only one, by the way. He's not the only one at ESPN. He's not the only one involved in boxing. He's not the only one in sports media. Lord knows he's not the only one. He might be the highest profile one, but he is far from the only one. His job, turn up the personality and say inflammatory things to get people talking. And one of the things that he mentioned, and his 
his recorded re- you know kind of response to Joe Rogan brings up some slightly more relevant points than you can get across in the time and in the manner that he does when he's on camera for ESPN. The notion that he's bad for the sport. And his response to this was, you know, check the numbers. It's a fair point that he's making. I'm not sure he's entirely correct, but... This, and this is where you kind of have to ask a slightly more abstract question. Is it better to have more people talking about your product, even if they are somewhat ill-informed? Is it better to have someone like Stephen A. Smith talk to the majority of the casual fan base, say stuff that most of them probably don't agree with, but because he's in a position of authority, they might be swayed to his point, or they might just you know dismiss him. I mean, his generalized thing is... I think I saw this on Twitter. Say something that, you know, 10, 15% of the fan base will agree with. Whether they agree genuinely or to be a little bit on the trolley side is unknown, but they will agree. And that is designed to incense the remainder of the fan base with how stupid it is, but it will drive chatter. It will drive profile. It will drive discussion. And I don't mean discussion in the high-minded sense. I mean just like generalized internet chatter. Is that more desirable than a smaller than people speaking to a smaller, more well-educated fan base? I don't know the answer. Like this is one of those questions that I do not think has a definitively correct answer thus far. Again, Stephen A. Smith is not the only hot take machine to have a place in sports media. Skip Bayless still does it. Colin Cowherd does it. Like these are people who. Again, they are not stupid people. They just deliberately sensationalize for the sake of exposure and traffic. And, it again, it raises something of a question, you know? Do you want a large fan base that is not very well versed on the issues? And if that's what you want, is Stephen A. Smith out there being... Stephen A. Smith saying that, you know, Donald Cerrone, all-time leader in appearances in the UFC, all-time leader in wins, all-time leader in finishes, all-time leader in bonuses, a quitter. Is that a bad thing? Now, to my way of thinking, it tends to be on the negative side. However, I don't run a multi-billion dollar sports company that has to be concerned with their public profile and how much people are talking about their assets. I run this podcast, (laughs) and God bless you for listening, but I know my numbers. I don't, that's not a consideration I have to make. I'd rather be able to speak with nuance and subtlety, and I'm, let me be clear, I have unpopular opinions that could be construed as hot takes, I'm sure. I'm not afraid to have them, I'm not afraid to talk about them. But I'm not a guy whose job it is to get on camera and say inflammatory things. And he, that again, that's his job. Like, that's his directive. Someone's telling him to do that, either directly or indirectly. You know, the manager's got signed to a giant, you know, multi-year extension for that position. He's not going away. He's doing what they want him to do. If you want to have a high-minded discussion about, do you want to educate the totality of the fan base on the nuance of the sport, 
Or do you want someone who's going to drive attention? You know, that's a that's a decision and a discussion that happens at levels far beyond that which the majority of you or me, I assume, don't mean to... Look, somebody listening to this might be an executive at ESPN. I'd be very, very surprised, but hey, I don't know who all of you people are. I just appreciate that you listen. <laughs> you could be anybody. Who might be willing to, you know, they might be able to make the call that, yeah, sure, we want you know, we want a hot take machine here in these events to drive traffic because our chatter increases, because our profile increases, and then that increases... That that's a thing. Like that's a legitimate thing that you can think about. And it does it does bear mentioning, again, the biggest part of any fan base, any fan base, is the casual fan base. And believe it or not, you can get as noodly as you want with this. Something as broad you know, sport, like baseball. You know, in the United States, baseball's still multi billion dollar property. Not just the individual team, like, you know, the sport. How many people are hardcore baseball fans? Could be described as hardcore baseball fans. Small. I mean, small as a percentage. As a, as a raw number, probably quite large. The majority are casuals. This is true of... Oh God, anything. Comics. You know how many people in the... Com- you, you know, the again, the largest part of the comic fan base probably might get confused about whether or not, you know, Black Canary or Mockingbird belong to DC or Marvel. It's just, it's just, it's a somewhat obscure enough reference that maybe they've never encountered it. Casuals. <laughs> they are everywhere, and guess what? You are them. So am I. Plenty of things I'm a casual fan about. So not plenty because of how my brain works, but they exist. Again, you can take whatever you want, whatever you might think you know, the most niche thing, potentially, that you might think of in the world. And there are casual fans of that who make up the bulk of the fan base. That's just how it breaks down. So do you want someone who speaks to the casuals and drives that kind of chatter? Or do you want someone who only speaks to the hardcores and who speaks in nuance and terms that a lot of people maybe don't understand? I don't know. And... To anyone out there running a sports industry, hey, maybe you do. Maybe you've gone either way, and there's pros and cons to each, and how you fine-tune the dial on which part of that, which side of that scale you slip to, depending on where you are at any given point in time. Okay. like I. But the notion that Stephen A. Smith is bad for the sport, I think at best it's an arguable point for being realistic about this. Again, is he going to... Here's the other thing about MMA fans. And you guys listening to this show, you're a hardcore fan if you were listening to this podcast, all right? More, you're on the more hardcore side of the equi- of things, right? I've seen three different generations of fans come and leave in this sport. That's a weird thing to think about, but there, is, but MMA fandom, more so in combat sports, I think probably. This is probably true of boxing as well. Like there are hardcore boxing fans. But there's a lot that only come and go. And there's a lot that... More so than that, even. You know, think about this for just a second. If you've been around as long as I have, or longer, plenty of people have been around longer, think about how many people you know who used to watch the sport and don't now. 
How many people, when Chuck Liddell retired, and I know Riddell, and I'm speaking like generationally, when Chuck Liddell went away, how many, what percentage of the fan base went away with him and has not come back? Conor McGregor or Ronda Rousey did not bring back the fans of Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz and Frank Shamrock, if you want to go way back in the day. Or George St. Pierre. They didn't really bring them back. They brought in new fans. Because MMA fan base has an, att- there's an attrition rate on the MMA fan base. You don't bring a lot of people back once they leave. Now, I'm not sure about this entirely. And I don't know who would be in a position to conduct the market research necessary to confirm this. But you get a lot more... And, and, okay, Ronda's gone now. How many people left with Ronda? Seriously, you probably know some of them. And I don't mean this negatively, by the way. How many people just, you know, generations of sports, generations of fans in this sport come and go all the time. How much value is there in, you know, talking to the hardcore fan base all that much? Now, again, this is not to say Stephen A. Smith is entirely correct here. If we're just talking about the point that he is bad for the sport and his presence talking about these things is bad for the sport, I'm not so sure it is. I do not like that that shtick works. Be very clear about this. You get hot take machines like that. I don't like it. I find it tedious. But I am not going to pretend that it doesn't work. So... Him being bad, again, is he knowledgeable about the sport? Probably not. I think he admitted as such. Does that mean that his presence is a net negative? There's data points along that line that you have to really get into. And the answer, to me at least at the moment, I don't know. He's not enlightening anyone, sure. But, you know, bad... That seems a bit that I don't know. Again, like that that bit might be a bridge too far for the argument. Is he good for it? Is he a net positive? Some of that depends on your pers- again, do you value nuanced discussion and education or do you value audience numbers reached? Which do you value? Fairly simple question there. Because if all you value is chatter and audience num- members reached, and visibility, then you, if that's what you're after, primarily, he's not bad. If you're after nuance, education, speaking to the fan base in a you know intelligent way, okay, yeah, not good. But it's it's really less clear to me on that issue based on how you want to look at the results. So, second point, and this went to his point about Conor McGregor. He said, Conor didn't show us anything, and he then elaborated, you know, what did he show in 40 seconds that would make you think a rematch with Khabib would go any differently? In fairness to his point, nothing. Like, we talked about this coming out. It's 40 seconds. What do you learn about a guy in 40 seconds? You don't learn nothing because you have new data. So what we learn about Conor in this 40-second fight? Well... We learned, outside of the cage, he still has star power and drawing power. The man is still highly visible. 
even after the layoff and the loss. It's still very visible, still has a, still has a fan base. We learned that his power at 170 seems to still be a, a solid enough thing. We learned that he's, you know, looking for... The, he, but, you know, did we see an improved takedown defense game from him? No. Did we see his cardio pushed? No. You know, it, it is a valid point to say that relative to... If all you did was show someone the Khabib fight and then the Cerrone fight and say, okay, what's different? Apart from the weight class... Like, did, did you learn anything new about Connor's skill set? Certainly relative to... You know, did this give you any belief that a rematch with Khabib Nurmagomedov would go any differently? It's a serious question. Because it didn't for me. Did not show me anything about that. This didn't speak to how a fight with Jorge Masvidal might go. Not really. I mean... It, it's possible a fight with Jorge goes that way again. It's another 40-second blowout, but I find that deeply unlikely. But, again, did, it's, a, it's a fair point to note that, hey, it's 40 seconds. He didn't get hit, he didn't get pushed, he didn't, get, he didn't have to demonstrate anything that we did not already know, in a lot of respects. So, has he shown you anything to think that if they booked... You know, I mean, I mentioned Skip Bayless as a stupid hot take machine. He said, you know, scrap Tony versus Khabib, put Connor in versus for, in Tony's spot right now. This is a stupid point. It's unbelievably asinine. But let's say they did. Let's say, look, let's say Tony falls out, and they put Connor in that spot. What does this fight do anything to tell you that an outcome that the outcome of a fight with Khabib would be different? What changed, in other words? What changed about Connor? What did he show us that has changed from that fight to this fight? Because I, largely the answer is nothing. You don't really have enough data. I would still pick Khabib to beat. I picked Connor last time because I'm kind of an idiot sometimes. I'd pick Khabib in a heartbeat in that rematch. It's not that Connor is incapable of winning that fight, it really isn't. But this did not demonstrate anything that would impact my analysis of that fight were it to be booked again. It's a fair point. Now, it's not exactly made in a nuanced fashion when he's on ESPN, but he's not incorrect. Uh, then there's his criticism of Cerrone. This one... This one irked a lot of people. And I can see why. Because Cerrone is to the to the fan base that watches, you know, I wouldn't say every event, but that watches more or less kind of a week-in, week-out thing. But we all love Cerrone. Like, we, I have deep admiration and respect for what that man does in the cage. It's There's, there's no other way to talk about it. And we've all kind of tacitly acknowledged, okay, he's never going to win the big one at this point. We still like him. He puts on great fights. And he's he's Donald Cerrone. Like we've all kind of come to grips with that. But when Stephen A. Smith says he quit, I I don't agree with that at all. And I'll go into detail in a second here. I do not believe Donald Cerrone quit in the way that you might think. Like he did not give up as soon as adversity reared its head. He did not come in there 
again, he did not go in there and go, you know what, no, I don't want to fight. That, that is a horrible, horrible misread. Donald Cerrone was made to quit, which is what you're supposed to do to your opponent when you fight. It's a credit to Connor. And, look, this was absolutely the worst loss of Cerrone's career. And there's a few people who have noted this. I know Nate Diaz uh, in the aftermath of that event. And I say this only because I know other people noted it in the buildup. Uh, Matt Brown, I think, said something on Twitter. Like somebody had asked, what's the most important thing for Cerrone going into this fight? Matt Brown, who somewhat famously got head kicked into unconsciousness by Cerrone, said, mindset. Is Cerrone just coming for a fight or is he coming to win? It's an important distinction there. And all fight week, Cerrone looked just happy to be there. And after the fight, Nate Diaz kind of mentioned, someone asked him about it, and his response was, Cerrone didn't seem like he cared if he won or lost. He cared about the... And that's an odd thing, but Donald Cerrone always shows up to fight. There's that man, again, in 364 days, he fought Alexander Hernandez, Ally Aquinta, Tony Ferguson, Justin Gaethje, and Conor McGregor. Who does that? Nobody does that. Nobody does that. He did. To his detriment. I mean, Tony, you know, carved him up like a turkey in their second round, and then, you know, and Tony hasn't fought since. Tony's, you know, managing his career in a specific way. Uh, Gagey knocked him out in the first round. Gagey hasn't fought since. <laughs> it's not a knock on those guys. They're trying to manage their careers. Cerrone seems like he is more interested in the fight than the win. And if that's what he... If that's the mentality he chooses to use and he knows what's up, Donald Cerrone's a grown man if who is you know has his eyes wide open about everything that he's doing when he conducts his career okay i'm this is not a knock on him but there is a there is a bit of a mentality there that some people have that some people you know and he's not alone in this there are fighters who are just happy to be in there and get into the fight and god love them you know they go to fight but think about someone like Tony or Khabib. You think those guys come to fight or do they come to win? And that might seem like a really odd distinction in mentality, but it's an important one. Khabib Nurmagomedov does not come to any fight to be in a fight. Just happy to be there to get a paycheck. He's there to win. Tony Ferguson's not there just to fight. He's not happy to be there. He's not just happy to be there. He wants to win. And again, Cerrone is not unique in the sense that you know, there's other guys who are kind of similar in that they're just kind of happy to be... They are willing to just be there to be in the fight and to put on the best fight that they can. And sometimes it's guys who get, you know, later into their careers and wind up having to... I mean, you know, Cerrone at this point, again, he's he's not going to be champion. 
that seems deeply unlikely. You know, Jim Miller. Love Jim Miller. How can you not love Jim Miller? Jim Miller going to be champion? There was a time when maybe he should have been contending for it. That was when Frankie Edgar was champion. At this point in time, seems deeply unlikely. He's there to have the best fight he can have. And I respect the crap out of people who do that. I respect, I respect anybody who gets in the cage and fights. I mean, you have to. You could die in there. Somebody willingly gets in there to do that, there is respect that is, that is owed for that. But, and again, we've all kind of mentioned Cerrone in the biggest spots of his career, they tend to be losses. He goes on a good winning streak, gets a title shot against Dos Anjos, gets finished in the first round. Moves up to welterweight, has some good wins, fights Robbie Lawler, oh, I lo- and I enjoy the heck out of that fight. He loses. It's not that he, ne- again, the man has the most wins in UFC history. He's he's not a bet. This is not to say he's some kind of scrub. He's really not. He's an exceptional fighter. But when you get to the biggest stage with the highest stakes, that tends to be those tend to be fights he loses. And that is a and again, that's not to say he's a choke artist. I don't think that's true. But it's certainly a habit, and whether that's because he just runs into guys better than him, whether that's you know his willingness to just fight whoever, whenever, catching up to him, whether that's years and miles. I mean, between MMA, kickboxing, boxing, the man has like 80 fights. That takes a toll. <laughs> Let's not pretend it doesn't. There's, there's all kinds of reasons. And I again, I am not you know, saying anything negative about Cerrone's performance. The man went out there and, you know, tried to fight. He just got shocked almost immediately. And then, I mean, look at the injury he suffered. His nose and his orbital bone got broken. You know what happened? And this is not to be a full-on shot at Stephen Smith. But I'll use him as an example. You know what happened to Stephen Smith if he got an orbital bone? If he got an orbital bone broken in the middle of a fight? I mean, he wouldn't fight in the first place. Or you know, any of these guys who are just like hot take machines. Heck, me. What happens if I get hit in the face really hard and my orbital gets broken? I'm going to the hospital. <laughs> I'm not going to think about how I can fire a head kick or avoid a punch from Conor McGregor. Cerrone did. And to his credit, I mean, in reality, that kick got blocked. Then he got kicked in the head and finished. <laughs> but there's there was a real physical injury there. It's <laughs> it's not that he he did not quit apropos of nothing because he was again he did not quit because he's a quitter. He was made to quit, which is what you want to do if you are fighting. You want to make your opponent have to stop fighting. You want to choke them unconscious. You want to torque a limb until they have to give up or be destroyed. You want to hit them so much that they can't physically defend themselves and the referee stops it. You want to knock them unconscious. 
Donald Cerrone was made to quit. Which is what everyone wants to do to their opponent. Now, again, if you want to talk about degrees of loss, yeah, worst loss of his career. Didn't land a single blow. But you know, calling Cerrone a quitter? No. Uh, this, is a, this is a point that I deeply disagree with. He got beat. That's what happens. Um, and the last thing that you know, kind of got brought up here is, you know, Stephen A. Smith's kind of general lack of knowledge about the product, which is something he acknowledged. Like he said, I think, you know, I think he said in his response, yeah, I'm not an aficionado of the sport. So much so, he doesn't even know what the sport is called. Which was somewhat hilarious, by the way. He's like, no, I've done report. I've reported on. And yeah, I've, I've been a journalist and done reporting on you know everything from boxing to football to baseball to UFC. Like, buddy, UFC ain't a sport. UFC is an organization. <laughs> the UFC is not a sport. It is an or- the, you know, NFL is not a sport. Football is the sport. NFL is the league. UFC is a promotion. Uh, and so I don't have a whole lot to kind of go off of there as far as should he as far as his credentials you know the man's been around for a long time he's been in the position he's in for a long time for a reason because he does the job that they want him to do and you know you can argue whether or not you think that's a good thing but I do think it is it might border on the unfair to say that he's bad at his job. You might say he's bad he doesn't again he clearly is not the most knowledgeable about MMA. And I would rather see someone who knows what they're talking about in that spot as a fan, as a consumer of product. But he's again, he's not there to be knowledgeable. He's there to generate controversy. He's there to be a provocateur. And they want, you know, the powers that be want that. They want someone who can do that. Again, is that the right call on a macro level? I don't know. I don't know. That's really something that, uh, you know, you, you as an individual fan kind of have to decide and acknowledge that, you know, us as fans are not really in a position, apart from how, you know, how we respond to, to the marketplace, like, you don't have to worry about that, <laughs> by and large. You know, you you don't have to make the those kinds of big decisions and worry about, you know, how your billion-dollar property is going to do. That's not something you have to worry about. It is something they do, and I think that's a consideration that has to be acknowledged. Again, I don't like it, but I am not the marketplace. I'm just part of it. And I'm a small part. Not only am I a small part as an individual, what I do, I speak to only the most hardcore fans, man. And I know what a small percentage of the fan base that is. And I love, hey, again, I love you guys for listening. I like what I do. I'm just not under any illusions about it. Stephen A. Smith has an audience of millions. And that's not really, I hate to say it this way, that's not really an accident. 
So what do we take away from all this? As you know, he's responding to Rogan. Rogan's If we're going to take away something from this, I think it should be the following. This is not going away. There's, especially if, you know, we're talking about like the hardcore fan base who get really annoyed by this kind of stuff. You got, you know, we've for a long time thought about, you know, wanted mainstream attention. Here's the reality. This is what it looks like. You think Stephen A. Smith is the only, he is not by any stretch of the imagination, the only person occupying that position of, you know, kind of hot take machine not, he's not the only one on ESPN. He's not the only one in sports media. Every sports organization has somebody like this. Because they've all decided that they'd rather have, you know, the controversy and the chatter and the, you know, the profile that it drives. This is this is not going away. It really isn't. Now, we can all hope to make it better and hopefully ESPN will, you know, put people who are more knowledgeable in that spot in the future, but the kind of generalized tenor of this, you know, listen, do you guys listen to sports radio for other stuff? You think inflammatory, you you think, you know, inflammatory things like this that are designed to generate talking points and, you know, traffic are new? MMA has just kind of existed in a small, you know, in more of the bubble and hasn't really had to deal with that. Well, the more mainstream it gets, the more people are going to be talking about it. And remember, the largest part of the fan base is the casual one who does not really keep up on things. So again, would I like to see Stephen A. Smith in that same position? No. I'd rather see someone who knows what they're talking about. But ESPN seems to want someone who will do the job that he's doing. And I can disagree with that. I can disagree with you know, wanting someone in that position. I do not like it. But I don't have to consider the realities of multi-billion dollar sports platforms. <laughs> I just don't. That's not anything that I have to worry about. And if you do, maybe you have some numerical data that says, hey, you know what? Having someone who will do and say stuff like this in this way is beneficial over enough iterations, over enough period of time. And I, I have to imagine it's something like that. Otherwise there's, no ex- otherwise, there's no excuse or reason for it. None. If you, so, that's my two cents on that. Stephen A. Smith isn't going anywhere. The proliferation of hot takes and provocateurs in the sport, talking about the sport, is not going anywhere. As, especially as the sport gets, you know, more and more mainstream and more and more people talk about it. That's not going away. Uh, you know, and how we handle it going forward is going to be it's going to be an interesting thing you know i think it was luke thomas who noted mma fans have a really refined radar for carpetbaggers 
which if you don't know what that is, is a it's a southern term that refer that kind of derived came about in the uh, post Civil War American South, when people from the North would move down to start businesses, uh, you know, help and I suppose arguably aid in Reconstruction, but you know, people moving down not you know, for purely opportunistic reasons in some respects, and I'm I'm not here to say that's good, bad, or otherwise. It's a statement of fact. And the term came about because a lot of them were carrying their belongings in bags that were, you know, had like carp- uh, what we would recognize as like carpet patterns. Carpet uh, cloth. And there's going to be a lot more of that as the audience grows and as the profile grows. There's going to be more and more people wanting, who are going to be, you know, carpet bagging in our space. That's there's no two ways around it. That happens with everything. It just does. So, for whatever that particular bit of the discussion was worth, there you have it. As far as my takes on everything goes, I hope it wasn't a giant waste of your time. Uh, moving on. All right, uh, we got an update of sorts on Stipe Miocic, UFC heavyweight champion. Who is fine? He had an eye injury. I forget what it was specifically. My apologies, but he's on the mend from that. We don't have a specific timetable for his return yet. And in a statement he released, he seems more interested in big super fights. I think he said like, "Hey, I'd love to box Tyson Fury on the undercard of a McGregor Mayweather rematch." Can we stop, please, with this crap? Please, I beg of you. Um, when was the last time Stipe fought, actually? I have to look this up, because I'm a bit more lenient than most when it comes to, you know, your fighting schedule. Okay, they fought in August of 19. Okay, so we're... So we're only five months removed from his last fight. Uh... If they really try to go through with some stupidity with him boxing Fury, the man has contenders. You've got Curtis Blades, you've got Daniel Cormier, you've got the upcoming winner of Nganu and Rosenstrike. Three of them. you got three viable contenders right there. No, sir. You do, and moreover, like, Stipe wouldn't get the same, wouldn't get a third of the same payday that Connor did for fighting Floyd for him to box Tyson Fury. Wouldn't happen. So please don't. Please, let's just not with the silliness about that. It's just, I don't want it. I don't need it. <laughs> Nobody does. I mean, look, Stipe's, you know, sure, he's categorically underpaid as far as that goes. But, uh... You're not going to get the giant payday boxing Tyson Fury, man. You don't... You don't command that same kind of market value. You just don't. Um, okay, a couple of other short things here, I guess. Uh, Paige Van Zant was supposed to be in a fight. She had to pull out of that as her right arm broke again. For the record, this is the same arm that she broke in, I think, her last fight. And then went out for the... Her corner knew about it, and they sent her out for her third round anyway. How does that decision look now? You know? When we say live to fight another day, that if you get injured, there's no shame in saying I'm done... Especially if you're young. Especially if you're young. Oh, I've got a Macy Barber tore everything in her knee. I'm sure that won't grab... That's not going to 
de- potentially derail her career. It actually, you know, it, hey, it might. That was Paige Van Zandt. Oh, I'm sure you can fight with a broken arm. Then continues to have issues and injuries related to it for a long time. And we're going to pretend? <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> that suddenly everyone going, hey, no, sure. Keep fighting with a broken arm. You won the fight. Yay. Okay, uh, minor correction. Uh, yeah, I believe that was the Jessica Rose Clark fight. So, you know, yeah, y- you won the fight. You broke your arm. She comes back about a year later. Took a whole year off. Uh, before she fought Rachel Ostovich. Uh, which she wins. Then she's supposed to fight Pollyanna Botelho. Uh, the arm breaks again. Uh, she didn't think she'd require surgery. Turns out that she did. She was out for longer. But now she was supposed to fight Amanda Hibas, which is a soft touch. Um... And now, yeah, the, the arm's broken again. Like, this, this is why you should protect your fighter, cornerman. That's your job. Ugh, so there's that. Um, all right. I suppose last thing. Well, I'm going to check Twitter again. But last thing for the moment. Uh, we got a little bit more information on Robert Whitaker withdrawing from his fight with. Oh, Jared Kendanier. Uh Turns out he's donating bone marrow to his daughter. Um, <laughs> and there's only a few reasons someone needs a bone marrow transplant like that, or a bone, bone marrow donation. Uh, look, man. You know, that That's your kid. You know, if that's what's up, I do not begrudge that man one bit. I think it's a shame... It is a shame that as great as he is, that man has been unable to truly maximize his potential due to, you know, injuries and timing and other issues. But, I mean, what, I'm going to... If you say anything bad about this, I don't know what kind of an ingrate you are. I hope everything goes well. I hope his daughter's okay. And, (laughs) yeah, that's significantly more important than a fight. I hope that goes well. I mean, again, I love watching the man fight. That's my primary means of interacting. But there's things more important. This is one of them. And, you know, bone marrow donation is... It's not life-threatening, but it's not really (laughs) something you want, you know, leaving loosely around a fight camp or a fight itself. It's... Yeah, you're not going to fight, so... I hope everything goes well with that. I really do. Uh, let's see. I think that's everything. Let me refresh Twitter here, see if anything crazy happened. Um, Sorry, the Royal Rumble is going on at the moment, and that's uh, taking up a lot of my Twitter feed. I know a lot of people who <laughs> are wrestling fans, and I tend to tune in for the Rumble, so... Okay. Uh, nope, nothing crazy looks like it's broken in the last couple of minutes. Alrighty, let's see. What do I have for plugs this week? 
Um, this Tuesday, Mark Radulich and I on Damn You Hollywood over on the W2M Network will be reviewing Last Full Measure, a war drama that I, I kind of got put on the schedule, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, last week, Mark and I talked about Bad Boys for Life. It was, uh, well, about what you'd expect. Uh, the week before that, Andrew Graham and I talked about 1917, so you can find both of those kind of in the archives. Uh, Let's see. On the 30th, I will be taking part in the TV party for The Witcher, the Netflix series starring Henry Cavill, which I enjoyed. So I look forward to talking about the show. So you can tune in for that if you're so inclined. And yeah, we'll be out for a couple of weeks, barring something crazy. Until next time, thank you all again. Be sure to check out all of Jeff's work in the movies and television zone, as well as occasionally popping up in the wrestling zone. You can subscribe to the podcast here on all of your podcast app, any of the 411 Podcasting Network. That would be this show, the 411 on Wrestling with Larry Zonka, the 411 Interviews podcast that Jeff tends to do. So, yeah, please, we appreciate all of your support. We really, really do. I will see you all in a couple of weeks. Until then, thank you again. Stay safe out there, and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.